following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It Podcast with Brittany Page and Jesse Dallimore. Hey, everybody. Episode 812 of I Doubt It Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Dollimore, joined today by Brittany Page. Are you fully recovered from the day of picking fruits and vegetables at a real farm? I... An hour and 40 minutes well, away from I'm here. Gonna, I'm going to challenge that it was a real farm, but... You don't think it was a real a real farm, well, like, like a working farm. It just they plant some shit, and then a bunch of people from the city come and and pick it, or try when there's nothing left because it's been absolutely picked over. But okay, I'm sorry, what is a working farm to you? It needs to be like producing produce and selling it to stores. Is well, that when I think of a working farm, mm-hmm. I think of yeah, producing food that is. I mean, technically, you're right. And I'm fucking wrong. You're just bitter. They're you're growing. angry. Yeah, I am a little. Well, I, you're you're obfuscating from the point I want to make, which is how are you surviving mm-hmm. the person who is so strident about the use of sunscreen and ridiculing, shaming Jesse D? How are you feeling with the raging shoulder sunburn that you currently have? Huh. Yes, this did turn into an attack. <laughs> you know what? Where, where Where is the sunburn? Is it on my face? No, my face was spared. Oh, Is so, it on my neck? So no. cancer only matters if it's on your face. No, I'm not saying that about cancer. So really, cancer. now we learn the truth about what your concern is. It's about aging. No, it's Not about cancer. Okay, listen. It's certainly one of my concerns, but what I'm saying is... Most of my body was protected from the sunburn. So here's what I think happened. I think that I was putting on my sunscreen and I didn't want to get it all over my shirt. And mm, so I, mm-hmm. I I had some some space between my shirt that would give me uh, the opportunity to not get sunblock all over my shirt. And that resulted in severe sunburns. I'm sure your shirt is appreciative of not being stained with Sunscreen. So next time, I'm going to prepare in advance and put my sunscreen on before getting dressed so that I can fully coat my body in sunscreen. You so, see, I'm not used to going outside. This is new to me. I need to figure out yeah, what... Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so, so attack over. I just wanted that on the record. Okay. Um, it was... It was a great memory that was created. Yes. Great memory. Uh-huh. But... If you're going to go to go pick, it was supposed to be peaches, yeah, zucchinis and squash and blackberries. That was on the menu. Mm-hmm. Every weekend they change what's available to pick. Yeah. And we got like 12 peaches that could probably harm someone if you threw them at them because <laughs> they're so hard. They double as a weapon for sure. A, a substantial and awesome bag of squashes. Yes. Or is it just squash? Squash eye. Squash eye. Isn't that octopus? 
squat. No, it doesn't even apply, weirdo. <laughs> and and one single sad zucchini because there were no zucchinis to pick. Also, eight blackberries. Excuse you. Seriously. And then they charge you by the pound. It's seriously. What was it? Like 68 cents worth of blackberries? Yeah. Because we got out there and we realized there's nothing here, man. There's none ripe enough to pick. Yeah. Well, I mean... You could have gone digging for them, but at that point, we were like, you know what? We think this adventure is over. Let's go get some ice cream. Let me say, though, (laughs) Sweepy had a grand old time. She did. She did very well. She felt free as a bird Mm -hmm. running, dragging the leash behind her through the peach orchard (laughs) in, for me, which was was ankle-deep grass, for her... I mean, it was like corn stalks. Yeah. <laughs> like a corn maze she was running through. So it felt like a true adventure for her. Yeah, it was a good time. It was fun. We we drove about an hour and 40 minutes or so Yeah, from D.C. And uh, it's nice getting out of the city a little bit and driving through the country. And mm-hmm. you're still enamored by just the number of trees. and Yeah, it's green and beautiful here. And it, it was very nice. We also went to visit the uh, West Virginia border. Just so we could say we've gone to West Virginia. And Sweepy also crossed into West Virginia temporarily. She's now a, 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 a national traveler. We, we counted the states. Five states. Pretty good. We're counting D.C. as a state. <laughs> only, only we are doing that. Other yeah. people. The government does not. Yeah. We still are being taxed heavily. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have no representation in Congress. <laughs> so good times. And by the way, if you're thinking in your head, well, you move there, fuck straight off, turn off your podcatcher, I don't care what you think. You... What do you think, you're some kind of an Uber driver who says that to me every time I mention it? Fuck off. Wow. Oh. Bitter, a little bitter. Interesting conversations you're having with your Uber driver every time. <laughs> you're just ranting about D.C. statehood to Well, your how Uber many times driver? have I said it and people say... Well, you well, knew. You, you knew going in what was the deal doesn't mean we're less oppressed <laughs> revolutions have been fought for the the taxation without representation <laughs> look this episode is going to be solely now dedicated to the proposition of dc statehood i mean it's an important issue so i'm teasing we have other things to talk about we do we do to begin with we're going to talk about some voicemails and some or a voicemail and a, at least an email yes from listeners um a few episodes ago, I believe it was episode 801, so 11 episodes ago, we had Aaron Rabinowitz from uh, Philosophers in Space and Embrace the Void on in studio. He spent the weekend in our home. It was a great time. He's still uh, a part of our lives through a very active Twitter DM thread, mm-hmm. which is <laughs> always interesting. Yeah. Anyway, a listener is sounding off about that episode and some other things that are on their mind. Hi, Jesse and Brittany. Uh, This is Monica in North Carolina, and I wanted to call and tell you how much I love your podcast. Um, I'm a little bit behind on some of the episodes, but I really loved the interview that you did with Aaron Rabinowitz. I just recently listened to it, and um, I would love for you to have him on again. And uh, I would agree with him that um, Jesse is more of an Epicurean. So, um, yeah, that was interesting. Uh, the other comment I had was about the, the recent Politico story about the, the, um, 
the Republicans that were wanting to have operatives set in swing states in Michigan to challenge voters. Um, yeah, that was interesting. That I have worked at a polling station before, and the whole thing doesn't even make any sense. They, when somebody comes in to vote, if they're legally registered and they're on your list, then you check them in and they get a ballot and they vote and they put put it in the voter machine. Like there's no um, there's no option for anybody there to challenge them on whether or not they can vote. So yeah, that's really disturbing and I, I can't even imagine what that would look like. And if, if somebody tried that in our precinct, I'm sure there would be um, a riot or chaos of some sort. So um, okay, well, you guys keep doing what you do. I love your show, and I'm a Patreon, and thanks so much. Bye. Thanks, Monica. Um, we will pass along to Aaron Rabinowitz your enjoyment of his assessment of me. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, as far as the voter thing, people really need to wrap their head around just how dangerous this is. That For one, this didn't just come around with Donald Trump. They are now kind of re-strategizing around the the gloves-off approach that Donald Trump brought with him. The no longer having dog whistles approach. That they're just going to, out in the open, try to gum up the works in the hopes that even a small, scant percentage of the voters that they challenge will be disqualified because they need every single advantage, every single edge that they can get to win elections going forward. They need uh, black and brown people disenfranchised. They need women disenfranchised. They need college students disenfranchised. There's Their voter group, their voter block, has, has shrunk so much by their own hand and their policies that they need to cheat in order to win, and they're not even being secret. Like, it used to be with, like, voter ID, that they would say, well, it's just for voter security, when there's like seven or eight very prominent uh, examples of, of, of leaders in the Republican Party saying, if we can pass voter ID, it's going to help us in the elections. Mm-hmm. If it was just about security, how would it help one party or the other? Mm-hmm. They're starting to let the mask slip, and they're just out they're just out to win even if it is anti-democratic and and voter suppression closing polling stations all these different tactics that they're trying for sure well thanks to monica for being a listener subscriber and a patreon supporter that's awesome we very much appreciate it uh if you would like to call 657-464-7609 or of course you can use the email address to send us an old-fashioned email like these listeners did at idoubtit at dollamore.com. We have an email from Justin T. Justin T. writes, was turned on to your content when Jesse guest hosted for David Pakman, and now I listen to every podcast and as much YouTube content as I come across as a subscriber. Your discussion about Popeye was very moving to me as I lost my Lucy last year, January 8th, after 12 years, six months, and three days. And I am there with you. It still hurts. But having my Lana gives me the same fond memories when she exhibits the behaviors that Lucy used to. Love you guys. Brittany's the best part. Love the show. Brittany's the best part. Bye. 
Justin T, we definitely feel you on that. I mean, like we talked about with Popeye and with Sweepy, it is so nice to see the similarities because now it's turned. It, I mean, like you said, it still hurts. Yeah. But it's turned into a fond reflection on the similarities and we get to remember the happy memories and not just the the sad ones. Well, also, we get to see Popeye in Sweepy. Yes. Like, even now, the latest development, everybody, <laughs> is that her underbite is really starting to flex its muscles. It is, yeah. And Popeye had one tooth that shot out mm-hmm. because of his over- underbite. Mm-hmm. She, I think, is going to come out with two full, the whole bottom row of teeth and two of her bottom fang teeth hanging out. And we are over the moon about a beautiful, <laughs> about it. beautiful mug, it's beautiful so mug. Great. Along this line, and thank you, Justin T, for the email. Along this line, we got an email from a Patreon supporter, Bridget A. Hello, good people. I know you got another dog named Keith. I was gone for a while, and when I came back, you had Sweepy. What happened to Keith? If I might ask, I love you guys to death. So Keith was like a year ago. I think. Yeah, ju- just about a year. And just under a year. We got him like in August sometime. Keith ended up being a temporary foster dog. Yeah. He had significant problems that were not something that we were able to work with because he essentially required all day, full time care. Eyeballs on him at all times. And that was primarily because he had reached an age, four years old, never having been potty trained and having been left in an area in a kennel where he peed and would lay in it. And so he was, as four years old, very comfortable laying in his own urine. And this proved to be a very difficult thing to fix. So he required more intensive training than we were able to offer. We went into it knowing it was like a, let's see how it works. Even the rescue was like, Listen, this is a dog we've had in, re- in, in in the kennels for a long time. He's not even being fostered out. He's in a bad spot relative to his living conditions. It's terrible for him. Mm-hmm. Let's just see. So we, we, we tried it on for a couple weeks, maybe three weeks, and it didn't work out. And um, we it, it ended up being great for Keith because he didn't go back to the kennel. Mm-hmm. They ended up being able to find, because some of the behavioral problems he did have, we were able to solve, like chewing on on hoses and his leash and all this stuff. And so he was able to be fostered into a more permanent situation. Well, and that's the part of the story that you are leaving out, which is when we originally got him, the only behavioral problem that they informed us about was like his attachment to chewing on his, on his leash, which he did very quickly uh, correct that behavior because of our training. But then we learned he had uh, greater problems and greater needs that, that apparently they weren't even aware of so we hope he's doing well we hope he has found his way we uh named him keith but his real name was bobby so good luck out there to bobby (laughs) slash keith and we're hoping the best for him we named him keith because it's fucking hilarious (laughs) yeah i remember your uh your best friend brett number one was like do not name your dog keith and that kind of sealed the deal for us we're like definitely sealed the deal it's absolutely gonna be keith (laughs) I like any dog names that are people names. You know, like a dog named Steve is funny. Yes. Um, I can't think of other examples, but. Gary. Gary. Todd. That's a, that's a great one. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Kyle. Yeah. Okay. We have another email here. This email is from Anonymous. I would love to hear your thoughts and or the listeners regarding gun control and the current state of things in the United States. I'm a big proponent of gun control, licensing, permitting, banning, etc. I don't think anyone in this country needs access to weapons of war. One problem, though, is that the genie, or assault-style rifle in this case, is already out of the bottle, and considering we can't even pass basic gun control legislation, I am dubious we'll ever fully ban guns in this country. If we do, it'll be a long time from now, and in the meantime, there are 20 million assault-style weapons owned by the public. And then this person provided a source for that claim. I'm wondering if pushing for some of the limitations on assault-style rifles is a super good plan considering democracy teetering on the edge and all, especially with such a large percentage of the population that already owns these types of rifles. Seems like a sketch time to be actively disarming people, but at the same time, I'm a big fan of disarming people. Just seems like maybe not a right now thing. I also fully recognize this is a slippery slope situation. Part of the reason I'm writing anonymously is I don't want my name attached to anything that could be perceived by someone that doesn't know me as teetering towards dangerous extremism. I am also aware that the Democrats are being steamrolled right now and showing no sign of any kind of fight while there are people actively stripping away rights and protections from some of the most vulnerable. At its purest form, isn't the purpose of the Second Amendment in the Constitution to be able to stand up against a tyrannical government? Even typing that out makes me feel like a nutter butter, though. Trying to be measured and thoughtful here and would love your thoughts. Well, I know who this, who sent this. Obviously, we know who sent this. It was emailed in. And they are and have been for many years very vocal and very on the extreme end of gun confiscation and uh, making them illegal. So let me let me say this about uh the the threat of some kind of a an internal national conflict that would 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 involve bloodshed and war. Um if that were to happen then it would be just like it was in the civil war where those of us on the right side of the issue would stand up for the union for for the republic and there would be this weird, disparate element of resistors um, on the other side. And even if guns were illegal, they would eventually end up in the hands of civilians because the government would make that happen just like they did with the Civil War. So making them illegal would be very easily reversed if it were to come to a situation where there were bloodshed and we were fighting neighbor against neighbor, whatever. I think that's a... Uh, it's far in the distance if that were were to happen. I don't rule it out, certainly. Um, but making guns illegal would not. Making uh, assault rifles illegal would not hinder any kind of, of, of defense of the country. So when we're talking about in this email, actively disarming people and anonymous rights, that maybe this isn't the best time to be actively disarming people, like instituting a buyback program and getting these guns out mm-hmm. of the hands of people. That's not something that you view as feasible at all in this country, a, a buyback program? Of course I do. Yeah, I think it would be great. I, I think that there's no there's no reason for, short of actual civil war where we are fighting in the streets of America, in the fields of America against one another, 
Short of that, there there is no reason for weapons of war in private ownership. There just is not. With 20 million assault-style weapons owned by the public, as cited by Anonymous here, uh, we're kind of in a unique position than other countries. I mean, I know that um, Australia has a had a buyback, buy, mm-hmm. buyback program. I don't know how many weapons they were able to ascertain through that program. I'm sure I can do a quick search while you start talking. <laughs> well, listen, we are a far more wealthy country than Australia. We are a far, we're a far more wealthy country than just about any country on the planet. And what we lack, though, we, we, we have the money, we just lack the political will to do so. Uh, Australia, it was hundreds of thousands of guns, maybe up to a million guns. According to this Vox article that was written this year in May, Australia confiscated 650,000 guns, All approximately. Right, that's, that's fewer than I thought, but uh, still a hefty amount. Um, I don't know how, from a policy perspective, we would do that. But nothing worth doing is an easy thing. It's not like, oh, it's, it's going to be super. If it was super easy, it wouldn't be the conversation that it is. It needs to be endeavored. We need to get these weapons off the street. I, I think to, to, to answer the other point about the, the, the militia end of the Second Amendment, look, it, it's inarguable. Anybody who can read plain English can see that there is a motivation by our founders who put it in the Constitution. It was ratified. It's an amendment to the Constitution that that the the, the a well regulated militia necessary for the security of a street free state, comma the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. I think that's the language. I think that's the exact verbiage of it. Um, so we've got this bizarre three comma terribly written amendment and we're finally getting to the point where this conservative supreme court has codified through ruling and precedent that there is an individual right to own weapons that right is not i'm probably just rambling here when the, the audience knows all this there there is there no amendment is absolute no right is absolute no one would say, oh, I, I can own an AT4. I can own a grenade launcher. No one says that. No one says, oh, I should be able to own a, well, few people say I should be able to own a cruiser 50 cal weapon. The same should be said of semi-automatic AR-15 style, which are identical, almost identical to the M16A2 service rifle that is used by service people all over the world or all over the country and all over the world in combat. So ultimately, I guess I'm I'm not sure what the question is from Anonymous. I guess is now the right time. So if the weapon is made illegal and then we're we are plunged in some some kind of a civil conflict, they fear the the, the emailer fears that they will be without self defense in that kind of a conflict. So you know, I just. I don't think that's at issue. I think that we need to deal with the political realities we face. And if that happens, um, workarounds will be made. So Anonymous would love to hear from the listeners on what you think on this question. 657-464-7609 or I doubt it at dollamore.com. I doubt it is a listener supported podcast. Support comes from our most loyal, engaged, intelligent, and good looking listeners just like you via Patreon. 
Your support on Patreon for as little as $2 a month would help keep the conversation moving forward one podcast at a time. If you have a few dollars to spare each month, we invite you to help produce the show by joining the Patreon family. Please visit patreon.com slash I doubt it podcast. We would like to thank our new Patreon supporters, Oscar Z. Oscar Z. James R. James R. Denny S. Denny S. April P. April P. Walter B. Walter B. And Gilly. Gilly. So thank you to all of our new Patreon supporters, our current Patreon supporters. We could not do the show without you. If you are not able to support us on Patreon, no worries. We are grateful for everyone who listens to the show, downloads the show, interacts with us on social media, at I Doubt It Podcast on Twitter, at Dollamore on Twitter, at Brittany E. Page on Twitter, and of course the Facebook page, I Doubt It Podcast. Democracy facing down pessimistic politics with realistic optimism. So one of the topics we didn't get to last week was the fact that a grand jury subpoena has been issued in Georgia for for Lindsey Graham, for Rudy Giuliani, for Jenna Ellis, and several others, John Eastman included, related to their investigation there in Georgia surrounding the election interference and the attempt to steal the election in Georgia for Donald Trump. Now, a Georgia grand jury has subpoenaed Rudy Giuliani and Republican Senator Lindsey Graham as part of its investigation into possible interference by former President Trump in that state's 2020 election. The grand jury also subpoenaed members of Trump's legal team. NBC News national security correspondent Ken Delanian joins us now for more on this. Ken, good morning. So there's some big names in this latest batch of subpoenas. Let's start off with Rudy Giuliani. What does it say about his alleged role in overturning Georgia's election result? Good morning, Savannah. Well, first of all, it's, it's important to point out that these subpoenas demonstrate yet again that this Georgia investigation may be the most perilous for Donald Trump and the people around him. Georgia seems to be far ahead of where the Justice Department is in investigating these efforts to overturn the election. In terms of Rudy Giuliani, the subpoena focuses on his presentation to the Georgia legislature back in December 2020 of this video that he purported to show, he alleged, showed workers at the state farmer in Atlanta, you know, bringing in suitcases of fake ballots. Well, within days, that had been debunked by Georgia officials, but Giuliani presented it anyway as fact, uh, and and the subpoena is suggesting he should have to answer for that, Savannah. Um, in terms of what he's, his attorney has said, he's not yet been served with the subpoena. In the past, of course, Giuliani has consistently denied wrongdoing in this matter. Another big name on the list, as I mentioned, Senator Lindsey Graham. What does his subpoena say? Right, so that subpoena focuses on Graham's conversations with the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. Graham called uh, him and, and other Georgia officials and sort of used his influence as a prominent senator to ask uh, these state officials to re-examine the counting of absentee ballots. Now, again, Graham has not commented on this subpoena, but in the past, his spokesperson said that Senator Graham was, quote, asking about how the signature verification process worked. He never asked the Secretary 
Secretary of State to disqualify a ballot cast by anyone. Well, he'll now have to answer questions about that before a special grand jury in Georgia, Savannah. Now, the big question that we have here, just as we've had with the federal investigation, as well as even just the January 6th committee exploratory investigation here is, will these people comply? The subpoenas say witnesses must testify between July 12th and August 31st. Any indication if they're going to do that? And what happens if they don't? Oh, Savannah, this is much different from a congressional subpoena. Uh, this is a criminal special grand jury. And this, these subpoenas were signed by a judge because they target people out of state. So, and, and, and the subpoenas note that the state of Georgia has cooperation agreements with authorities in other states, including New York and other places. So these people will have to comply. And if they don't, they're subject to being held in contempt of court and even being put in jail, Savannah. All right, Ken Delaney, and we'll keep watching for that. Thank you so much. So it's definitely going to be a lot harder for Lindsey Graham, Rudy Giuliani, Jenny, Jenna Ellis, these others to skirt this. It's not Congress they can just ignore and call it political. This is law. The other thing is when Lindsey Graham goes in to testify under oath, his, his testimony compelled by subpoena, it's not going to be as easy for him to lie or obfuscate or not tell the truth or, or, or skirt around the questions. Take it from someone who sat inside of a jury room, a grand jury room, and witnessed hostile witnesses attempt to not answer the questions. Also, it's very likely that this grand jury has already heard phone calls with Lindsey Graham's voice on them. Because if you think Brad Raffensperger was only recording the calls from Donald Trump, I think that's a bit naive. I think it's very likely, I don't know, but I think it's very likely that they've already heard phone calls that have been produced by Brad Raffensperger to the grand jury. And when he goes to testify, he's going to have to answer to the things that he actually said that they know he said that they've heard him say. So lying's not an option. The other thing that I think is very important to, to understand and to keep in mind is this this deal with Donald Trump's, as the reporter called it, they subpoenaed his legal team. That means they're no longer protected by any, any, any attorney-client privilege because they were in on the crime. You can't just, if I have a lawyer, you don't get to just subpoena my lawyer and, hey, what'd they tell you? What do you know about this? Because there's a privilege there between attorney, attorney and client. The fact that they're being subpoenaed means they're either a person of interest or the attorney-client privilege does not apply because they were in on it too. Well, and right now the fundamental thing is that it is Lindsey Graham's account of this phone call on November 13th, 2020 versus Brad Raffensperger. And so who are you going to believe at this point is basically what it comes down to. And I think Lindsey Graham has not shown himself to be a trustworthy character well certainly uh, the secretary of state of the state of georgia who did by the way win his primary and is looking to be secretary of state again he had what it took to stand before the committee and testify under oath to the things he said lindsey graham up to this point has just been a blustering frustrating political operator who's a liar and hasn't had what it took to raise his right hand and swear under penalty of perjury to the things he claims Well, and speaking of political operators who are liars, I can't remember exactly what you said, but (laughs) 
Uh, Steve Bannon is apparently saying that he is now ready to testify in the January 6th investigation. The latest on the January 6th investigation. A stark about face for Steve Bannon. The Trump advisor now says he's willing to testify after Trump waived previous claims of executive privilege. Our congressional correspondent Rachel Scott is cracking the story. And Rachel, this comes just ahead of Bannon's trial for contempt of Congress. Yes, George, just days before his trial is set to begin, this is quite the turnaround for Steve Bannon. For months, he's been fighting a congressional subpoena. He is facing criminal charges over it, but now he suddenly wants to talk. This morning, a sudden reversal for one of Donald Trump's closest allies. Steve Bannon now saying he's willing to testify before the January 6th committee. The American people are entitled to Mr. Bannon's firsthand testimony about all of these relevant facts. The committee insists Bannon knew about the events planned on January 6th, pointing to this warning he issued just one day before the Capitol insurrection. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's not going to happen like you think it's going to happen, okay? It's going to be quite extraordinarily different. And all I can say is strap in. For months, Bannon has been defiant, held in contempt of Congress for defying a congressional subpoena. His trial set to begin in a matter of days. But in a new letter obtained by ABC News, Bannon's lawyer says circumstances have now changed. Bannon getting a green light from Donald Trump to testify. Trump claims in a letter to Bannon that he is waiving his objections because how unfair you and others have been treated. While Bannon wants to testify publicly, the committee is seeking his tape deposition behind closed doors. Anybody that wants to come in that knows information to talk to the select committee, we welcome them to do so. We welcome them to do so under oath. Now, Bannon is due in court today for a critical hearing in that contempt trial. He's facing up to two years in prison. And this morning, a new development. We are learning that Justin Clark, Trump's current attorney, who is very much so actively advising the former president, spoke with the FBI two weeks ago, directly contradicting Bannon's defense. Prosecutors say that Bannon's sudden willingness to testify is nothing but a last-ditch effort to avoid accountability, Amy. All right, Rachel Scott with the latest for us. Thank you so much. And that last part is from a legal brief that was filed today, just this morning by the Department of Justice that in in so many words is just saying that, that all this is is to try to delay, delay, delay still, and he's trying to get out of the contempt charge, the misdemeanor charge, which it carries with it a two-year prison sentence and a meager fine. Um, I would be very hesitant to lend any credibility to this claim that he's willing to testify under oath to the committee because of the fact that he is just a sower of chaos. And not, I was going to say at his core, but it's not even at his core. It's just his demonstrated behavior over the course of how many years we've known about Steve Bannon. So the next January 6th committee hearing is tomorrow, uh, July 12th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Apparently it's going to focus on... Uh, particularly on a meeting that took place in the White House on December 18th. And uh, Jamie Raskin was interviewed on Face the Nation on Sunday and talked about how it's just going to continue the story of Donald Trump's attempt to overthrow the presidential election. Yeah, I've heard they're going to be focused on some of the the, the more extremist groups and their their pretty tight relationship with the White House. Uh, It should be pretty great. So we've been talking a lot on this show about Roe v. Wade being overturned and some of our frustrations with the lack of action from the Biden administration. And he signed an executive order that 
they say is going to ensure abortion access, but we're going to talk a little bit about what actually went into this executive order. As we reported earlier, President Biden's issued an executive order today to safeguard access to abortion and contraception, a move that comes amid heightened pressure on the White House since the Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade. To understand what the president's order does and does not do, I'm joined now by our White House correspondent, Laura Barone-Lopez. So hello, Laura. I know you've been reporting on this for a number of days now, but looking at this executive order, tell us first what it does. So the executive order that the president signed today actually formalizes steps that he directed his agencies to take immediately after the Supreme Court decision. And so this executive order on abortion rights, what it does is it works to protect medication, abortion, and contraception access, encourages free legal representation for doctors and patients, protects interstate travel for abortions, and ensures ensures privacy for health data. Now, a lot of this is simply telling departments like the Health and Human Services Department to put together a plan. They have 30 days to do that. These aren't necessarily things that are new in terms of expanding abortion access. It's a lot about enforcing current law. So we know that the the president has been under a lot of pressure in recent days from advocacy groups, from Democrats, urging him to do more, to do more. Tell us what were the political considerations here as he worked his way through this. As you said, he's been facing immense pressure from within his party. And so one of the things politically that the president is trying to do is to draw this contrast. In his speech today, we heard him say over and over, reminding people to go vote, that ultimately these executive actions are not going to reverse the Supreme Court decision, and so that it is all about the November election. And he did talk about you know, the fact that Republicans, if they gained power, could potentially Potentially issue a national ban. That's something that we've heard from a few Republicans across the states and trying to also draw attention to what different uh, red-leaning states are doing because he is hoping, as well as his entire White House is hoping, that ultimately that could help Democrats come November. So it's only been a couple of weeks since the Supreme Court issued, two weeks exactly, since the court issued this. Laura, is, your, is it your reporting that we're going to see more from the president, from the administration on this? So... A lot of what Democrats have been asking President Biden for was not included in this executive action. Their biggest uh, wish list items were not in this. The White House said today, uh, Jennifer Klein of the Gender Policy Council, one of the president's co-chairs, said that they haven't ruled out a public health emergency declaration, although they are very skeptical about the actual impact it would have and the resources and the funds there. They also, so far, have not ruled out the idea of using Medicaid to fund travel for abortions. So we are going to keep a lookout to see whether or not those bigger asks on executive actions come down. So this is uh, this is uh, maybe just the beginning. We'll see. Yes. Laura Barone-Lopez, thank you. Thank you. So several things here. One thing is that the administration seems to be concerned that any action they take is then going to prompt litigation and that is somehow preventing them from taking certain actions. And it seems like yeah. maybe now is not the time to be concerned about whether or not you're going to be met with litigation and instead to do whatever you can to show that you give a shit in order to indicate to the general public that you're trying something and that you're motivated to act in the face of what has happened here. Like they said, the executive order that he signed is basically just directing the Health and Human Services Secretary to look at how to enforce the existing laws. It's not anything about expanding access. It's yeah. about enforcing current law. And they talked about the the pressure that 
Biden has been facing, that that's ultimately why he took this action and signed this executive order. I want to read a statement from the White House defending his response, his his lack of response up until now on on the issue of Roe v. Wade. And they said, quote, Joe Biden's goal in responding to Dobbs is not to satisfy some activists who have been consistently out of step with the mainstream of the Democratic Party. It's to deliver help to women who are in danger and assemble a broad based coalition to defend a woman's right to choose now, just as he assembled such a coalition to win during the 2020 campaign. Fuck you, White House. Fuck you. Not to satisfy some activists who have been consistently out of step with the mainstream Democratic Party. Is now the time to be attacking activists within the Democratic Party? Well, while they're saying, go vote, go vote, go vote. You know what I don't hear is him saying, Joe Manchin is the problem. Kristen Sinema is the problem. These are the senators that we need to put pressure on. It's he won't even say the word abortion. Right. So Joe Biden doesn't seem to have the metal to face the current problem that we're facing as a nation. Right. And in that news package, they talked about his statement imploring people, encouraging people to vote. So let's play some of that statement when he was signing the executive order. The only way to fulfill and restore that right for women in this country is by voting, by exercising the power at the ballot box. Let me explain. We need two additional pro-choice senators and a pro-choice House to codify Roe as federal law. Your vote can make that a reality. I know it's frustrating and it made a lot of people very angry. But the truth is this. And it's not just me saying it. It's what the court said. When you read the decision the court has made clear, it will not protect the rights of women. Period. Period. After having made the decision based on a reading of a document that was frozen in time in the 1860s, when women didn't even have the right to vote, the court now, now, practically dares the women of America to go to the ballot box and restore the very rights they've just taken away. One of the most extraordinary parts of the decision, in my view, is the majority rights, and I quote, women, I'm just a quote now from the, the majority, women are not without electoral or political power. It is noteworthy that the percentage of women who register to vote and cast a ballot is consistently higher than the percentage of the men who do so. End of quote. Repeat the line. Women are not without electoral and or political or or maybe precise, not and or or political power. That's another saying that you, the women of America, can determine the outcome of this issue. I don't think the court, or for that matter, the Republicans who for decades have pushed the extreme agenda, have a clue about the power of American women. But they're about to find out, in my view. It's my hope and strong belief that women will, in fact, turn out in record numbers to reclaim the rights that have taken from them by the court. And let me be clear. While I wish it had not come to this, this is the fastest route available. I'm just stating a basic fundamental notion. The fastest way to restore Roe is to pass a national law codifying Roe, which I will sign immediately upon its passage at my desk. Listen, I'm I'm happy that he's finally doing this because this is something that we had pushed for earlier, that he has a specific plan, that he takes it to the voters. He says, this is what we need. 
I'm still frustrated because, you know, when he's saying they're about to see the power of American women. Yeah, we have no choice but to vote in droves because things are going to get much worse. Things are bad, but they're going to get much worse for everybody if Democrats do not win. So there's no choice. It is frustrating because it's for for Joe Biden in this White House, for Nancy Pelosi as the Speaker of the House, and for Chuck Schumer as the Majority Leader of the Senate, it's business as usual when it's not business as usual on the they're they're dealing with it as politics as usual when politics as usual doesn't apply. He he even he says we need two additional pro-choice votes mm-hmm. in the Senate. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't say why we need two additional when we have the majority in the Senate. We've got 50, 50 senators that, that, that caucus with the, uh, with the Democrats, as Sweepy is registering her complaints as well. But why do we need two additional when we have 50 plus Kamala Harris being the tie-breaking vote? He's, he's skirting around the issue that we need to be talking about, and that's naming names. And the benefit of that, of course, is to initiate a public response to those specific yes. people that is overwhelming in nature and can possibly be uh, what they need to convince them to do the right thing. I mean, maybe public not. pressure. But as we're seeing, Joe Biden is responding to public pressure. Public pressure is what they respond to. That's exactly right. And I know people are rather hopeless when we talk about Kristen Cinema, Joe Manchin. But if they can cave to other types of pressure, we know that they are capable of caving to public pressure Absolutely. and public backlash. Yeah. Now, Joe Biden, we were talking about uh, whether or not he's going to run. And I just want to read these numbers. Only 26% of Democratic voters say that the party should renominate him in 2024. And 94% of Democrats under the age of 30 said that they would prefer a different presidential nominee. He cannot run again. No way. He cannot run again. And if he does, it is selfish. And I don't know what else the motivation would be other than being selfish. I think it dooms us to a Republican president in 2024 and a surrender, uh, an abandonment of of Democratic principles because they're going to be if if the Republicans win in 2024, I think it's over for the United States as we know it for for forever. Mm-hmm. I, I, and that's I I don't say that hyperbolically. I am the optimist, the 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 eternal optimist. But I'm just reading the reading the cards as they fall here, mm-hmm. and the Republican Party will not give back power after they get it back in 2024. Mm-hmm. We'd love to know what you think, though. 657-464-7609. Of course, you can email a voice memo from your smartphone to idoubtit at dollamore.com. So you heard Biden talk about how important it is to vote. Right now, 538 is forecasting that the United States House Republicans are favored to win. 87 uh, to 100. It's crazy. And in the Senate, it's apparently a toss-up. And... One of the states that uh, is a toss-up is Nevada, where you have Adam Lexalt, who is a Trump-endorsed candidate. Trump is going to be campaigning for him in Nevada. And you have the Democrat, Catherine Cortez Masto. And 
Apparently, there are some Republicans in the state of Nevada that are actually coming forward and saying they're going to vote for the Democrat because of the issue of abortion, whereas there are some Democrats in Nevada saying that the issue of inflation may prevent them from voting for Democrats. In the battleground state of Nevada, the balance of the U.S. Senate. The woman's right to choose is not a partisan issue may lie with abortion rights supporters like Susan Fisher. I'm a registered Republican the day I turned 18. How angry are you about what's happened on this issue? On a scale of one to 10, about a nine and a half. That's pretty angry. Yeah. Angry enough to reject her party's Senate nominee and instead support a Democrat. In 1990, Nevada voters codified abortion access into the state constitution. Then a young mother of two, Fisher was one of the activists who went door to door to convince voters. In the 2022 midterm, on the heels of Roe v. Wade being overturned, Fisher fears that that work could be unspun. I do think that this is going to be a pivotal issue for a lot of races, and especially in this state. How many women out there do you think are like you? I think a whole lot more than we know. I really do. The opponent who is running against me is would be the vote that would support a federal abortion ban. The majority of Nevadans support abortion rights. And incumbent Senator Catherine Cortez Masto is seizing on the issue to hammer away a Republican Senate candidate, Adam Laxalt. My name is Adam Laxalt. I'm ready to fight for what is right. Who is mounting a significant challenge backed Great. by Donald Trump. And there's no one more trustworthy in Nevada than Adam Laxalt. Laxalt has said he will honor Nevada's state constitution protecting abortion. But then audio obtained by the Nevada Independent suggests Laxalt wants to reverse the state constitution. Roe v. Wade was always a joke. It was a total, complete invention. We are not a pro-life state. We've got work to do on that. Women are outraged because this is a state that we really respect women's freedom and the right to choose, and just outraged by what we see happening across the country. But the outrage, front and center among voters, is on prices affecting their pocketbooks. Gas prices, grocery prices, housing market, all that. What do you want to tell the party in power right now about how you feel? You let us down. At this Reno grocery store, other Democrats say abortion rights are vital. But so is feeding their families tonight. I am a registered Democrat, and uh, I'm kind of debating on why. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. You know, Catherine Cortez Masto yeah. is on the ballot. Yes. Will you be voting for her? I may be, actually. Maybe. We're, we're going to see. I'm playing it all by ear right now. Senator Cortez Masto is crisscrossing the state, talking not just to women, but also to working class Latinos. Meanwhile, in just a few hours, former President Donald Trump is scheduled to be here in Las Vegas, rallying side by side with Adam Laxalt, hoping to energize Republican voters. So what's strange to me about that clip is hearing someone say that abortion rights are vital, but uh, still they need to put food on the table and that that's important too. Because they're struggling financially. And I understand that that's an immediate need right now. And certainly things are very expensive. I keep commenting every time we go to the grocery store. I'm like, really? This can of tomatoes is $7? Yeah. (laughs) What's happening? But abortion rights are so fundamental because if you're worried about being able to uh, feed your family, provide clothing for your family, that's only going to be made worse if you get pregnant and then you're unable to terminate a pregnancy 
that you would otherwise want to terminate because you can't afford to have yeah. a child. Try adding a, a mouth or two to your brood and see how expensive things get. Or even if you have a health complication yeah, and something happens to you because of that health complication related to a pregnancy because you were unable to terminate the pregnancy. I mean, there's there's all kinds of uh, situations that we're facing here. I mean, pharmacists are refusing to fill pain medications being prescribed for women that are getting IUDs. This is where we yeah. are with this. So this is an immediate need. I understand that it, it may be more readily apparent when you're seeing the prices of food in front of you, but these are things that are just as important, abortion rights. Yeah, I... I I have little sympathy for people who put human rights um, in a backseat. It's not great. So if you live in Nevada, Catherine Cortez Masto. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, the next, the, we're going to wrap with this story. We were, this is not, we will say very plainly, this is not a taking care of biz, but a woman in Texas has challenged the HOV laws, the high occupancy vehicle, the carpool lanes. Uh, she's pregnant and got pulled over because it's just her in the car. And she is is apparently pushing this case forward into court to have her baby uh, recognized by the transportation department as a citizen who's also riding in the car. HOV lanes are supposed to be for cars with two or more people. You can see the signs. It says HOV, parentheses, too. When Brandy Batone was driving down Central Expressway, she came across a sheriff's checkpoint targeting drivers, breaking the rules. He starts peeking around. He's like, is it just you? And I said, no, there's two of us. And he's like, well, where's the other person? And I went right here. Batone is 34 weeks pregnant. Like, but the officer told her that doesn't count. And I said, well, not trying to throw a political mix here, but... With everything going on, this counts as a baby. And he kind of waved me off. Batone got a $275 ticket. Different judges might treat this differently. This is this is uncharted territory we're in now. I Legal experts say it's an interesting discussion, especially in light of the recent Supreme Court ruling on abortion rights. But Dallas appellate lawyer Chad Ruback says there's no clear answer. Because there is no Texas statute that says what to do in this situation. The Texas Transportation Code has not been amended recently to address this particular situation. Who knows? The legislature might do so in the next session. I really don't feel like it's, it's right because one law is saying it one way. But then another law is saying it another way. A new twist on an old question. How to define a person. Scott Gordon, NBC5. So I think this is good just to illustrate the hypocrisy. I don't actually want it to go to the place where they write in the law that uh, a fetus counts as a person. Because once we start heading into that territory... I don't know what that's going to mean for abortion rights. So, like, I understand what's happening here, and she wants to highlight the hypocrisy. She's also not taking care of biz because she's not willing to say what her position is on politics. Yeah. She has come out and said that she's heard from people on both sides of the abortion rights issue and that she uh, puts herself in a different category, which is just pro-woman. So she's not using this story to advocate for abortion rights. Right. She's just making this challenge because she doesn't want to pay her ticket. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Texas has been um, a bummer. I mean, for generations, Texas has been a bummer, especially politically and especially in this context, because they have given legal framework, especially with their stupid um, other citizens can sue other citizens and civil court and, oh, the it, it extricates the government from being held liable. They are creating legal framework for other states to do, to follow their lead. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it would be a bummer if they were to codify a a six-week-old clump of bloody cells as a person mm-hmm. to be able to be put on a life insurance policy, to be able to, to count it on taxes, all of these different disparate elements that would be completely um, muddled in the law if, you know, a majority of the states took up and took the the example of Texas. Right, and I think it's useful to use those things as examples of the hypocrisy, but like I said, I'm I'm reluctant to have it move further than that. It's just a, a hypothetical that you toss out of like, oh, well, why aren't we having people pay child support as soon as right. the pregnancy test is positive? Why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we doing that? And I think the reason is because... It's a fetus. Yeah, it's bananas. So. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we'd love to know absolutely what you guys think of this. You can call. Leave us a brief, brief, brief voicemail. 657-464-7609. Of course, you can email a voice memo from your smartphone or a regular old-fashioned email to idoubtit at dollamore.com. We are going to leave you there. We love you guys. We appreciate you. If you've been on the fence and you are in a financial position to do so, we would invite you to help support and produce what we do right here on the show. You can go to patreon.com slash idoubtitpodcast and help support what we do. We love you guys. We will see you next time. Until then, for Brittany Page, Barkin' Ass Sweepy, I'm Jesse Dollimore, and this has been I Doubt It.